Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you speak to us through your word. Help us now as we consider this word that you have given us by your spirit through your apostle Paul. We pray that uh, you help us uh, to think about uh, how we um, live together as as your people uh, and the kind of leaders that you want us to have. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We know that leadership, at its very essence, is the exercise of influence over other people. And we also know that leadership is important in any organization or group. When there is no formal leadership, or when formal leadership is weak, informal leadership will arise. But, whether it's formal or informal, there will be leadership. Someone, or some group of people, will influence the others. So whether formal or informal, whether naturally arising or appointed, there will always be people who take the lead and set the direction for a group as a whole. Now, a local church is a group of people. By the time we get to the end of this passage, we'll see that it's far, far more than simply a group of people, but at a basic level, that's what it is. A group of people who gather together around God's word. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the leader. But in our passage today, he has told us by his spirit, through his apostle, his spokesman Paul, that we too are also to have other leaders, human leaders who will lead his church. And because he is the Lord of the church, he determines the criteria for the kind of people they should be. Now there are two groups of leaders mentioned in this passage. The first are the overseers in verses 1 to 7, and the second is the deacons or servants in verses 8 to 13. And we're going to look at both of them in turn, or each of them in turn, rather. Before we do that, a couple of points about terminology. In the early church, the main leaders were called overseers, as we have it here, or another way of translating the word overseers is to say bishops. There were also among them In fact, these were also known as elders, or another way of translating it is to say presbyters. So overseers, or bishops, and elders, or presbyters, were actually the same group of people. Now the clearest demonstration of this is in in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, where uh, Paul says, I left you in Crete to to appoint elders in every town for an overseer, must be above reproach. You see that? Uh, You can also see it in Acts chapter 20 uh, on the next slide. Where Paul calls the Ephesian elders to come to him in verse 17 and in verse 28 he says, pay attention to yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So the elders or presbyters were also the same group of people who were also called, in a different way, overseers, or in King James Version English, bishops. Now, many churches have kept some of these names for their church leaders. If you go to some independent churches, you'll find they're governed by elders. Uh, And even in our Anglican denomination, we've picked up some of these names. Because, remember, the Greek word for elder is presbyteros, which is rendered presbyter, 
and unfortunately, in our context, shortened to priest. Well, I say unfortunately because it's caused much confusion because what we call priests is different from what the Bible calls priests. Now, when the Bible calls priests, it's talking about something different. But when an Anglican minister is called a priest, he's been talking about a presbyteros, an elder. Right, so we've picked up the elder word. We've also picked up the overseer word. Right, the overseer in the Greek is episkopos, which, as I said in King James English, is rendered bishop. Now, we use the word bishop to refer to a leader of a group of elders or presbyters. But in the New Testament time, there was no distinction. The elders and presbyters, or overseers or bishops, were the, the same people. They were the pastor teachers and therefore the main leaders of the congregation. And there were usually a number of these presbyters or bishops in each congregation, or at least in each group of congregations. There was what they call a plurality of elders, team leadership. We've also changed the meaning of the word deacon. Uh, the word deacon simply means servant. Right? The way things are now in our Anglican denomination, uh, being a deacon is like being a probationary presbyter. You're a deacon for a year, and if you're okay, then you become a presbyter. Right? But that's not what a New Testament deacon was. I'm not quite sure what they did back then. Uh, but it does seem they seemed to all kinds of served in all kinds of ways, except in the main teaching and preaching, which was the job of the first group of people, the pastor, teacher, overseer, bishop, elder, presbyter, whatever you want to call them. What we can be sure of about the deacons, though, is that they're not like our current deacons. Now, if all that's confused you, that's fine. Because you don't need to know all that at this stage. The point I'm making in this is this. Right? We in the Anglican denomination, just like many people from many denominations, have picked up terminology from the New Testament, but we're using it in a different way. So it doesn't necessarily follow the mode of operation of the New Testament church that we need to think about how we take what's in the New Testament and, and put it into practice. Just because we have the terminology doesn't mean we have the same reality. And so when we read 1 Timothy 3 or any other passage that deals with church leadership we cannot simply read backwards from what we see around us now into the passage. Does that make sense? You can't look around and see, okay, there's, a, there's this and there's this, okay, this is read it back in. Right? You can't simply say verses 1 to 7 of chapter 3 is referring to bishops, and verses 8 to 13 is to deacons, and think that's, therefore, that's what we call bishops and deacons. What Paul calls bishops and deacons are different. So we have to understand, to understand the passage there, we have to understand what elders or overseers meant back then, what Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus first, and then work out how it can be applied in our church today. So, forget everything you know about church hierarchy and enter the world of the New Testament. You may recall from chapter 1 that the Apostle Paul urged Timothy to stay at Ephesus to charge those who are teaching false doctrine to stop doing so. Right? So there's the defensive, the negative side of Timothy's uh, the instructions on the positive side Timothy is instructed what kind of leaders the church ought to have and when Paul talks about these overseers or these deacons he gives the qualities that are needed for each first of all for the overseers these are the ones who are leading overall of the church right? chapter 3 verse 1 this saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, 
he desires a noble task. Right? The overseer's job is an office, and it's not wrong to want to be one. Right? It's a good work. If you want to do it, fantastic, come and talk to me afterwards. Right? But it's a very responsible work. As far as we know, we don't know for sure, but as far as we know, it seems that the elders were elders for life. So you have to be very careful when choosing them. Right? Paul says on another occasion, do not be hasty with the laying on of hands. You need to be watched, you need to be evaluated before being chosen. And an elder, Paul says, must an overseer, Paul says, must be above reproach. Verse 2. Overseer must be above reproach. (laughs) That is, he is someone who cannot be open to attack or or criticism based on his actions. That doesn't mean he's he's, uh, got to be perfect. That was the case. We simply won't have any leaders other than the Lord Jesus himself. But an overseer, a church leader, must be someone who is squeaky clean. Can't stick mud. Someone known to be of good character. How does this express itself? Well, Paul goes on with a whole list of things. He must, in verse 2, be the husband of one wife. Or literally, the man of one woman. Anything else is out. So, adultery would disqualify you. Divorce and remarriage would disqualify you. Polygamy would disqualify you. Keeping a mistress would disqualify you. Having a same-sex marriage will disqualify you, something that not just the Episcopal Church in America ignores, but even the Church of England doesn't seem to understand. To treat marriage as anything other than the plan of God for a lifelong exclusive union between one man and one woman is wrong, and an overseer must not model that. Must be husband of one wife, man of one woman. And then in verse 2, he must be Uh, Second half of verse 2, he must be sober-minded, self-controlled. He must be someone who is clear-headed and rational and prudent and thoughtful. He is in verse 2 again to be respectable, someone who acts in a way that's honorable, that that, that people can esteem. And he must be, still in verse 2, hospitable, someone who is willing to care for strangers for the sake of the gospel. At the end of verse 2, he is someone who is able to teach skillful in handling God's word able to communicate God's truth to others but it's not just skill in communication of God's word that able to teach us about the only other time that that phrase appears in the Bible, actually that's actually one word that that word appears in the Bible is in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 24 keep your finger there and cross to 2 Timothy 2 24 and it says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil okay? so being able to teach there is being able to teach in a loving way uh, as opposed to being quarrelsome or resentful so being able to teach is not just about skill but skill plus being able to use it in a godly way then verse 3 tells us what the kind of things that overseer can't be he can't be a drunkard That doesn't mean he can't drink alcohol at all, but he must be someone who gets drunk on alcohol. He can't be, verse 3, violent. He can't be an aggressive man. He can't be the kind of leader who bullies and intimidates people into doing what he wants. He can't be like those leaders who are all holy at church and then beat up their wives at home. He can't be violent, 
but gentle, not quarrelsome. And he can't be, the end of verse 3, a lover of money. Someone who is greedy, who will steal or lie or, or compromise the leadership for the sake of monetary gain. And he must be proven before he is given the charge of the congregation. We have to look at the other products of the ministries he is involved in. And in particular, look at his family, look at his children. Verse 4. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? The church is a big family, and you, you see what kind of leader he will be by looking and seeing how he's leading at home. And then the overseer must be a mature Christian. Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. For his own sake, you can't just take someone who's just become a Christian and, and put them into leadership, because that's a spiritually dangerous position. You need to be spiritually mature enough to not only exemplify those virtues listed here, but also at the same time realize how sinful and weak you are and how much you need to depend on the grace of God. Or Otherwise, you end up thinking that you're pretty great and you've made it to be a leader and you're bloated with pride and you forget your lowly place before God, just like the devil. And like the devil, you face his condemnation. And finally, verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. It must be, must be someone with a good reputation. It doesn't mean he has to be popular with non-Christians, but it does mean he can't be someone that non-Christians can look at and go, ah, scandal, scandal. Because if the church is meant to glorify God, the devil will always try and bring it down and bring us leaders down. He will try and trap us and disgrace us and, and make non-Christians think bad of us so that they will not hear the message. And we must not have leaders who make that whose behavior makes that possible. In fact, if they persist in sin and their misbehavior is proven by two or three witnesses, later on we will see that they must be publicly reprimanded. A couple of weeks' time, I think, in chapter 5. If we cover up misdemeanor in order to protect the name of the church, well, that's actually foolishness. Because eventually it come out and makes it all worse. So it just mustn't happen that in the first place. As we look back at the characteristics of the overseer that Paul describes, notice, did you notice what, what did you notice about it? Notice that the main criteria, contrary to what we normally think, the main criteria is not gifts, but godliness. Did you notice that? There's one criteria, able to teach, it's a combination of the two. And there's one criteria, that, that is not being a recent convert, that's just a matter of time. But otherwise, all the other criteria are areas of godliness. And friends, that's a really, really important principle when it comes to church leadership. Paul doesn't say, choose people with great leadership skills. He doesn't say, choose people with great rhetorical skills. He doesn't just choose people with great management skills. When it comes to overseas, they'll need some maturity and need to be able to teach. But the most important thing is godliness. And it's the same thing when Paul goes to talk about the next group of leaders who are called deacons or servants. Right? Now, I, I don't know if I mentioned just now, deacon, servant, exactly the same word. 
Okay? And if you go to chapter 4, verse 6, across the page, you will see that uh, Paul says to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's the deacon word. You will be a good deacon of Christ Jesus. And at the same time, while we have elders being appointed in the New Testament, we don't see examples of deacons being appointed. In Philippians 1, 1, Paul does greet the elders and the deacons of the Philippian church. So we're not sure if the deacons are a special office, like that of an elder or overseer, or a more fluid servant leadership role that, that people took up when it was needed. Right, not told exactly uh, what they did. However, the qualities that are needed for them are exactly the same. We see in verse 8 that the deacons must be dignified. That is, serious, honorable, respectable. They're not to be double-tongued or insincere. They can't be people who are addicted to much wine, alcoholics or drunkards. They can't be greedy for dishonest gain. can't have leaders who steal or cheat. Instead, verse 11 they must be uh, verse 9 rather they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience right, the mystery of the faith is simply the gospel we'll talk to you later about why it's called mystery but the deacons or the servants must hold on to it what kind of deacons who aren't firmly holding on to the gospel and they must do it with a clear conscience that is having lives that are consistent with it. So they can say with a good conscience, I'm living it out. Again, it's not saying they're perfect, they'll fall into sin, but the general tenor of their lives must be ones that, lives that have been redeemed by Christ. And their conscience tells them that. But it's not just their conscience on the inside that tells them, people on the outside can see it as well. And that takes time and inquiry. And so in verse 10, let them also be tested first, then let them serve, as deacons is not actually there, if they prove themselves blameless. That we need to see the deacons are blameless. Again, not perfect, right, but above reproach. Above public criticism. And just like with the overseers, the family is important. It starts with the wives in verse 11. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things now this verse is a little bit difficult because it's possible that the word translated wise could also mean women it could be either one women or wise and if it is meant to be translated women and it could be then Paul's talking about female deacons now the biggest thing in favor of that is that it's a bit strange to mention deacons wives if overseers wives are not mentioned isn't it um, however, it's also strange in the flow of the passage to go to female, go for, to, to, to deacons and then go to deaconesses and back to deacons again in verse 2. In verse 12. And by saying, and by starting the instructions to them with, with likewise must be dignified in both cases, in verse 8 and verse 11, I think it shows that he's thinking of the people in verse, not thinking of the people of verse 11 when he's writing verse 8. So it's verse 8 is a different group of people. Furthermore, the, the word for wives or women is seen very close to it again uh, in verse 12, uh, where the question is, no, there's no question that it means wife. Right? So it could be either, it could be either, but overall I think the probability is more likely that our translators have got it right. 
and they're talking about the wives of deacons. Right? But it could go either way. So what are they to be like? Well, chapter 3, verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. They are to be dignified, that is, serious, honorable, respectable, like their husbands were meant to be. They cannot be slanderous. They cannot be people who go around carrying stories that are not true. They must be sober-minded, people who think clearly, whose minds are not clouded, including by alcohol. They must be faithful in all things because their responsibilities in the church will be weighty. See, when you get a leader, you get a package, don't you? The husband and the wife work as a team in ministry and the wives of the church leaders are church leaders. And so the character of the wives are important. But the church leaders are obviously not to multiply the leadership by multiplying wives. And so the same criteria for family life that is applied to overseers applies to deacons or servants as well in verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And the reason for this is given in verse 13. Now, follow with me. This is a little bit difficult. Notice notice verse 13 starts with the word for. That means that it actually gives the reason what Paul has said in verse 12. Now, what the ESV translates as serving well as deacons or serve well as deacons is actually simply serving well or deaconing well. Okay, Because remember, serve, deacon, it's the same word. So the phrase as deacons is not there. So I think what it's saying in verse 13 is not saying serving well as deacons, but serving well in verse 12, in the households. So why do deacons have to be people who have done well in home leadership? For those who serve well, referring to the home, gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. It is, if you are a good servant leader at home, then you should be recognized as a good servant leader. You should gain a good standing for yourself. And therefore, you're in a position to serve a church. Furthermore, home ministry is important ministry. As you do that ministry, as you lead your family in loving God and teach your children to trust him, and you, then you grow in confidence in the faith and you are better prepared to lead God's church. So potential deacons need to work hard at home. Looking back then, what do you notice about the qualifications for deacons? Uh, Another thing, once again, the key thing is godliness, isn't it? Gospel faith lived out in action. Once again, tested out in the home before being made leaders in the church. Now, why is all this important? Why does Paul write all these things to Timothy? Uh, He does so because the Holy Spirit wants to say these things to us through him. See, Paul could have just said these things to Timothy verbally and we wouldn't have them today, would we? But Paul says he wrote this down for Timothy. Actually, he wrote it down for Timothy in case Timothy was delayed. Uh, He was delayed in meeting him. See what he writes in, in, in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. 
So God in his sovereignty ordered the circumstances so that Paul wrote these things down in the letter just in case he goes delayed and now we have them too. And we too know how to behave in God's household. Now the word household there is also the same word as house. And when the Holy Spirit says he wants us to know how we ought to behave in the house of God, he's not talking about the building, is he? Right, we know that. Church building is not the house of God. God doesn't live here. He doesn't even live over there. Church is the gathering. The congregation. The assembly of God's people around his word. That's where God may be found. We are God's people, God's temple. And together we are the house of God, where God dwells by his spirit. And so like the temple of the Old Testament, we are holy and we need to act that way. Including in how we choose our leaders. Church of the living God, the gathering of God's people, it is the house of God. That's us. That's one good reason why we need to have godly leaders. And furthermore, the church of the living God, verse 15, is a pillar and buttress of truth. That is, it is together we support the truth. We hold it up. We make it clear for all to see. And if we are going to be what God wants us to be, if we're going to be pillars that hold up the truth for the world to see, then again we need to be holy. We need to be the kind of community that exemplifies and lives out the truths that we publicly affirm. Now in verse 16 these truths are called the mystery of godliness. Or back in verse 9, remember, they were called the mystery of the faith. In both cases it refers to the gospel. You see, I said I'll tell you about mystery. Why mystery? The word, word mystery simply means secret. Okay? Paul often called the gospel a mystery because that's what it was before God revealed it. It was a secret that we wouldn't be able to work out ourselves unless God told us. It doesn't mean something that's spooky or incomprehensible, just something that's unknown unless it's revealed. Let me give you an example of a mystery. What I ate for dinner last night is a mystery to everyone in this room. Now, it's not spooky or incomprehensible, but it is a mystery. It is a secret that I haven't told you. But now, I'm going to proclaim to you the mystery of my dinner. Here it is. Rice, cabbage, some chicken, some chili, an egg, and warm water. That's the mystery of my dinner. That is a secret that has now been revealed. Don't tell the smack two people, please. Now, the mystery of the faith, or the mystery of godliness, is a lot more interesting and a lot more important, isn't it? But just like the mystery of my dinner, which you would not have known until I revealed it, the mystery of the gospel is something that we would not have known unless God revealed it. But God has revealed it, and now we, the church, are holding it up for everyone to see. We're proclaiming it publicly, that which was once a secret. And in verse 16, it's, we have it summarized in what was probably an early Christian hymn. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now let's have a look at this in a bit more detail. It's a hymn about Jesus Christ, isn't it? 
and you will see there are six lines in there. The first two go together, the second two go together, the third two go together. So we'll call each of them a doublet because they've got two lines. Right? And each of the doublets ends in a contrast. In the first doublet it's the flesh and spirit. The second is angels and nations. And the third is the world and glory. One by one. The first doublet starts with the facts about Jesus and his resurrection. Now here's a mystery. Something we wouldn't know if God hadn't told us. God became a human being in the person of Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh. But people didn't believe that Jesus was God made human. They thought he was a liar and killed him. But at his resurrection he was vindicated by the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, showing him that showing everyone that he really was who he claimed to be. God made man. So he was manifested in the flesh and in his resurrection vindicated by the Spirit. The second doublet tells us how the mystery of the resurrection was spread. The risen vindicated Jesus was seen by angels. Now, the word angels means messengers. And I think that what it probably means here when it says seen by angels or messengers is that the risen Jesus was seen by his specially appointed messengers, the apostles. And of course he was seen by angels. Well, we think about angels, but, but I think it's talking about that here. He was seen by his, his messengers. In contrast, the people from the nations, people like us, we didn't see him with our eyes. But we received the message of the messengers that was proclaimed to us. So he was seen by messengers and proclaimed to the nations. So the message spread when the risen Jesus was seen by messengers and proclaimed in the nations. The third doublet talks about the consequences of the mystery. What happened after the resurrection? What happened to the people in the world? What happened to Jesus? Well, first of all, Jesus was believed on in the world. Right? That happened, and it's still happening. Right? That message about Jesus is being proclaimed among the nations and believed in the world. People are putting their faith in him, that risen Lord. That's what's happening in the world. But what's happening, what happened to Jesus? Well, he was taken up in glory. Not only been vindicated by his resurrection, but also ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, the, the place of ultimate authority in the universe, where he reigns as this true king to whom everyone must submit. And so there you have the mystery of godliness, the message of the resurrection and its consequences. Manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed in the world, believed in the world, taken up in glory. Okay, So let's recap what we've learnt from our passage today. First of all, God's church also has human leadership. Yes, Jesus is our Lord, but on the ground it's not completely flat. God has ordained that there should be leaders among his people. And we see in this passage two groups, overseers and then deacons or servants. Overseers take overall responsibility for the church. They lead God's people primarily through teaching God's word. And deacons serve by leading in other areas of ministry. We should look for these kinds of people to lead us in our gatherings. Now we may not use the same terminology here because the waters have been so muddied by their use in the past 2,000 years of just making it even more confusing if we did. But what they do is more important than what they're called. Right? In fact, we shouldn't be worried too much about names because the New Testament has many different names for the same group of people. But as we go on, especially as we plant new church in Ampang, we should think about how we organize ourselves. 
how do I identify people among us who at least function in these ways, even if we don't use the terminology? Secondly, and this is the main point of the passage, the most important criteria for church leadership is godliness, not giftedness. Let me say it again. The most important criteria for church leadership is godliness, not giftedness. Let me say it another way. In God's church, among God's leaders, God values character above ability. Character above ability. So if you go home today and you forget everything else, you've got to just remember this thing. Church leaders must be godly. Value godly characters and leaders before any other quality. It's a basic requirement of church leadership on which there can be no compromise. And that was true for both overseers and deacons or servants. Remember the overwhelming bulk of qualifications to do with Christian character. See, the fact that someone has a Bachelor of Theology or a Master's of Divinity does not qualify them to be a leader in God's church. Now, of course, it's important to have leaders who are trained in the word, but it's even more important to have leaders who are godly. And yet, over and over again, we see around us, in this country, people appointed to leadership in churches who are ungodly. And everyone knows they're ungodly. People who steal from churches, who are not faithful to their wives, who have no standing with outsiders or insiders for that matter. And when they're exposed in one church, they move on to another. They are not shepherds of God's flock. They are wolves who prey on his people. Friends, never, ever, ever accept an ungodly minister. If I steal money from the church, if I'm unfaithful to my wife, if I become a bully or a violent man, then make me resign. If I'm repentant, forgive me and love me and rehabilitate me as your brother, but remove me as your pastor. I cannot afford to have ungodly leaders. This is God's word. And churches ignore this instruction to our peril. Thirdly, however, as we've looked at the character of leaders, I wonder if you've noticed that they are terribly different from what God requires from all of us. Well, it's not just leaders who are meant to be honest. It's not just leaders who are meant to be sexually moral. It's not just leaders who are meant to be self-controlled. It's not just leaders who are meant to be sober. What God is saying here about leaders is it's actually people who are simply living the Christian life that all of us are meant to be living. In other words, these qualifications are not arduous they're not meant, leaders aren't meant to be like super spiritual Christians living on a higher plane than everyone else. Not doing special things in a class of their own. They're just living the Christian life like, like all of us. And the kind of character traits that Paul gives us here for overseers and deacons is what all of us seek to have. They're just plain, basic, godliness characteristics. Once again, the only two exceptions are able to teach for overseers and again for overseers not being new Christians. But other than that, everything's the same for all of us. So if you're not a leader, don't look at the list and think, oh, well, these things don't apply to me. <laughs> they do. 
It's not saying that people who aren't leaders are exempt from godliness. It's saying you can't appoint someone to be a leader who's going to lead everyone in this direction when they're not heading in that direction themselves. Now, these things are for all of us. Fourthly, we've seen that the family is very important. At one level, it is a training ground for potential leaders. It doesn't mean it's the only training ground. There are many other places in our churches nowadays where, where future overseas and servants can be trained, but the family is still an important one, isn't it? But it's not just a training ground. It's a primary place for ministry in church leaders. And those of us who are leaders in some way or other mustn't neglect our families in order to serve God's church. Well, that would be a big mistake. We need to lead our families well first before we can serve God's church. Fifthly, we've seen that the godly church leadership is important because the church is very important. And the church is very important, we've seen, for two reasons. Because it is the gathering of God's people, it is God's house, God's temple, and so we must act as God's people and exemplify holy behavior. And secondly, because it is the pillar and buttress of truth. Hold up God's truth to the world. Yes, we'll be attacked by the devil who will seek to discredit the truth and we need leaders whose lives will not bring disgrace to the name of Christ. And finally, we've seen this truth that we proclaim, this mystery that we hold up to the world, is all about Jesus and his resurrection. The God-made man, shown to be so by the Spirit who raised him from the dead, was seen by eyewitnesses who proclaimed his message of resurrection to the people all over the world, now he's being trusted in the world and reigns in heaven. The ascended, risen, glorious, trusted and proclaimed Lord who rules his church and seeks godly leaders to lead his people under his rule. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for the word that you have given us in this passage. We pray, Father, that uh, these will be things that that each of us take to heart. That the characteristics uh, of godliness here are something that uh, all of us will be um, seeking to exemplify in our own lives. And we pray that... um, Whatever happens in in the future, uh, that the leaders of your church uh, would be people um, who who do um, um, have these 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 characteristics that you have given us. Father, we pray that you help us to have your heart for your church, uh, that we would see beyond ability and gifts. Look first at, at godliness in life. Um, and Father, we, uh, we pray that uh, we would indeed uh, be the pillar and buttress of your truth, uh, declaring it to the world, uh, and that the Lord Jesus, who was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit, uh, will be glorified in your church. And we ask this in his name. Amen.